How are we doing everybody? My name is Kelvin, he, him pronouns. I'll be your guide today with the help of my friends. Jamie, she, her pronouns. Ryan, he, him pronouns. And welcome back to History Spelunkers, where I take a deep dive through the internet, books, whatever I can find out about some weird or niche event in history and explain it to them. And so hopefully they will provide colorful and witty commentary. Y'all guys ready? Yes. Ready as I'll ever be. All right, down the rabbit hole we go. Hello? Uh, hello, Di- hello, Dimitri. Listen, uh, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Oh, that's much better. <laughs> yes. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then... Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. <laughs> Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know... Just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but any time, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. Have y'all seen the movie Dr. Strangelove? Stanley Kubrick. I vaguely no. remember it. Old black and white movie. No. It's famous for its ending scene of having a guy ride a nuke like he's on a fucking Bronco waving his hat around in the air. I've seen like pictures of that, but I don't think I've ever seen I've seen the screenshot. Movie. Yeah. Yep. Well, the premise of that film is uh, nuclear annihilation during the Cold War, which is kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Because today we're going to be talking about uh, nuclear catastrophes. You know, usually people, whenever they think of such events, you get Hiroshima, Nagasaki, uh, the Bini Atoll test, or Chernobyl, right? But uh, we're going to focus on how lucky we are because there have been a lot more times whenever things have gone bad. Where a lot of people could have gotten hurt, but uh, we've just 
been lucky because the switch was flipped one way or something along those lines. Things went right whenever they went wrong. <laughs> and so the military designates accidents that involve nuclear weapons that could threaten the public as broken arrow incidents. And the Pentagon's official list of all the broken arrows contains 32 incidents. It's a lot. It's probably not as many as happened, but <laughs> all right. 32 that we know of. Surprised they tell us about any of them. Well, some of these happen pretty out in the open, so they're kind of hard to hide. So I'll tell you about the more famous or historically significant incidents. Not to say that all accidents that involve nuclear material isn't important, but uh, <laughs> some did have an outsized effect on national policy and international relationships, that kind of stuff. Our first incident is one that I've written about before for class, and this was actually the first instance that my dad told me about a long time ago, but I have since found out that his story might have been exaggerated a little bit, but <laughs> let me tell you all, it's uh, known as the Goldsboro Incident in North Carolina. So on the morning of January 24th, 1961, a couple weeks after JFK has just been inaugurated President of the United States, a B-52 bomber suffered a fuel leak, which resulted in a fire and structural failure of one of its wings during its flight. This aircraft was part of a program that had nuclear-armed bombers in the air 24-7, on continuous alert in case of World War III breaking out with the Russians. Okay, so like airplanes constantly in the air. There were always planes with nukes on them flying. Over North America? Over North America. They would make a loop from where they took off in the United States, circle up towards the North Pole, close to Russia, and get just to the edge of their airspace and stuff. So that way... In the event that something happened, they can just Dip take a right Russia. turn, and they're already there. Seems like a perfectly safe idea. Well, yeah. I mean, fuel leak, plane is crashing at this moment. And so, um, what on this particular bomber, there were two Mark 39 nuclear weapons that broke apart. As this plane was crashing, they separated from the plane. Three of the eight crewmates died in this plane crash. And the two bombs separated, like I said. And so they are falling to the ground. Bomb one, we'll call it, deployed its safety parachute and suffered a little damage and was safely recovered at the crash site. The other bomb did not deploy the safety parachute. And so it fell thousands of feet and broke apart upon impact embedding itself into the North Carolina swamp. Both of these weapons went through part of their arming sequences. Bomb 1, because the parachute deployed, triggered three of four of the safety steps, and the only reason it didn't detonate was because the safety switch, a physical switch, was on. The other, it didn't separate... It didn't initiate it because the parachute didn't start. And so while it still went through, it wasn't able to go through as many stages. 
so neither bomb did go off. Had either of them done so, the blast would have been 250 times more powerful than the bomb on Hiroshima and would have leveled homes up to five miles away. Wow. And so the first bomb landed safely. They were able to take it off. Well, second bomb's in the swamp. So immediately the Air Force bought the land that it landed on <laughs> and began digging a crater to try to find all the pieces. And the crater ended up being over 42 feet deep and 200 feet in diameter. And they were working to recover all the materials. This program eventually ceased on May 25th, so a few months later, because it being in the swamp, they were not able to continuously pump out all the water to keep digging down deeper. And so, like, they were pumping out thousands of gallons consistently. And it was estimated that the remaining materials that had not been recovered were around 180 feet deep. And they weren't able to dig that low. And so they just stopped. And so there's nuclear so material in, in the swamp, swamp still. Is it nuclear material or is it like a shell it's, of the bomb? Like, is it, a is it still dangerous? It's visible. It's not dangerous. It's not going to explode. It is part of the arming mechanism, and there is also a bit of physical material down there, I think. And so the land is still owned by the Air Force, and the remaining materials haven't been located. They still routinely do testing on the area and have determined that it is safe enough to not have to worry about. Well, um, I feel like it should still be worried about a little bit. Yeah, I don't think they're going to be selling that land yeah. anytime soon. <laughs> Probably not. So, like I said, my dad exaggerated the story. Whenever he first told me about this, whenever I was like a little kid, um, he told me that uh, it had the second bomb had like landed on a cow and killed it, and that it made <laughs> green hamburger patties. <laughs> Uh, I couldn't find out if a cow was actually killed in this incident. A cow in a swamp? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know about yeah. that one. Yeah. I don't know of any cows that live in swamps. Swamp cow? Shrek cow? Shrek cow. Shrek cow. Jeez. But um, if that same bomb and that accident were to happen today in the same area and it detonated, it could kill over 44,000 people probably. And probably affect a lot more than that. With radiation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. See, another question I have is, can nuclear bombs just detonate? Like, you said the three or, four, three or four safety measures had gone off. It was just a physical safety switch. But could an impact set it off? Or would it have to be a, an actual mechanism of the so bomb? So with the way nuclear bombs work, they do have conventional explosives, but then they also have the visible nuclear material they are separate the conventional explosive whenever it goes off it can trigger the arming mechanism which fires a bit of plutonium into the visible material at such a force that it starts the reaction so so if the arming mechanisms and safety mechanisms work as they are supposed to the conventional explosive can still go off but it shouldn't trigger 
the nuclear side of things. So you know how sometimes they still find bombs from, like, World War II, mm-hmm. just, like, in random places? So if you were to come across a nuclear bomb like that, it could potentially, like, have an explosion, just not a nuclear explosion? Well, it could still have a nuclear explosion if, you know, the arming mechanisms don't work properly. Okay. If it, But it's technically two separate explosions, so... One is much mm-hmm. more likely than the other, not to say that they both still couldn't happen. Hmm. I'd hate to be the person that stumbles across that. And of course, this is not too, <laughs> this is not too long after those first tests when they weren't even sure if, it, if the reaction would stop. Like, there were times when they weren't even sure if nuclear fission would just keep happening and just keep propagating. I know that might have been like a small issue and it might have been conspiracy theorists, but there were people, I feel like, that thought that it would just encase the entire earth at some point well you know you got to do it for science ryan yeah one one test is all you need how can you even call yourself an engineer if you don't have a curious mind (laughs) i'm not doing nuclear engineering so well our next incident actually happened before this other one um but it's sort of during the same program and you were saying like you wouldn't want to be a person that stumbles upon a weapon well this might be your chance actually oh, no. <laughs> um no, thank you. so this one is known as and hopefully i'm pronouncing it correctly but the tybee island incident off the coast of georgia back in 1958 in 1958 on february 5th during training exercises a fighter plane collided with a b-47 stratobomber at around 2 o'clock in the morning, the fighter pilot ejected from his plane, and he was fine. The bomber pilot, Colonel Howard Richardson, managed to regain control of his plane after the collision, and it had plummeted 18,000 feet from its original altitude of 30,000 feet. So it dropped a good ways. And so in order to prevent the plane crashing with a Mark 15 nuke on board, uh, permission was granted for the bomber to reduce its weight by dropping its load off the coast of Georgia. So this was a training exercise with a live nuke? Yes. Hmm. I would think they would have a dummy for that if it's just training. Like, if it's a nuclear test, you obviously have to have the bomb, but if it's just training, I would think a dummy would be enough. But also, I might be a dummy. I I would be likely to agree with you, but um, it was part of training with the same sort of constant in the air 24-7, and so I'm not sure why they had a live nuke on board, but they did. And they granted them permission to drop it off the coast of Georgia. And so the bomb was dropped near Tybee Island, far north of Georgia's coast near Savannah. The bomb did not detonate upon impact in the sea. And Colonel Richardson was able to land the plane at Savannah Airport, well, at their military airport near Savannah, and was actually awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his abilities in this incident. And so, luckily, no one was killed. 
But the bomb, we don't know if it armed or not. And so... Wait, so he dropped it? He dropped it, and we don't know... Yeah, he dropped it in the water. And we don't know if it went through its arming mechanisms and or the staging like the previous bomb. I feel um, like there has to be some kind of activation from the pilot or someone on the plane before it's That's what they're to... thinking. They're thinking that it probably didn't. It was probably safe. Probably? Well, <laughs> as probably as safe as it could have been. There were reports stating that the weapon was complete. But there are others that say that, like I said, the two separate parts... Uh, people were saying that the plutonium, the nuclear part of the explosion, had been removed because it was a training exercise. But we don't know which report is accurate. So we hope it's without the plutonium. So we then hope. It, so then it explodes, but not nuclear yes. explodes. So do they even know if it exploded at all? or? So it didn't detonate on whenever it crashed into the water. Afterwards, it probably... We didn't detect any sort of explosion on the ground. It did still, regardless if it had the plutonium or not, it still contained several hundred pounds of conventional explosives. Conventional explosives. um, And it did have some enriched uranium on it. So while it wouldn't have been like a nuclear bomb, it could have still been like dispersing kind of like a dirty bomb sort of deal. Radioactive at least. Yeah, it could have sped spread radioactive material but it wouldn't have been as catastrophic as a nuclear Mm. explosion so they began to look for this bomb the next day as you would with sonar and the department of energy estimated that the bomb would only be about 10 feet under the silt on the seabed but by april 16th of that year so a couple months later uh, the Navy announced that the search had been a failure. They lost the bomb. <laughs> so, can sonar even go through the top 10 feet of silt on the ocean bed? Well, I would hope Navy has good sonar, but I don't know. So it's loose minerals versus a metal bomb, I guess. Solid object versus... Yeah, yeah they, de- uh, they deployed the Air Force... 2700th Explosive Ordnance Disposal Squadron had 100 Navy personnel equipped with handheld sonar and galvanic drag and cable sweeps. I don't know what that means. They basically <laughs> drug a net around with the sonar, hoping to so they grab went, it. So they went trawling for a bomb. They went trawling for a bomb. Um... That's I guess kind. was this before GPS? You'd think they'd track those things, but this would have been before uh, GPS because there would have no satellites really in space at this point. You know that would make sense. It was 1958, and so by 2004, private individuals had managed to narrow the search area to about the size of a football field, based off of Geiger counter readings for the uranium. Okay. That's pretty good in the bomb. But upon further inspection, um, it looks like the Navy, whenever they dropped this bomb, managed to hit a spot on the coast that just happened to have a naturally radioactive rock called monazite in it. 
So it's just naturally radioactive in that area enough to where we can't use Geiger counters to find the bomb? Oops. So it's still out there. And there are treasure hunters that still go out there looking for this bomb. At this point, the Navy says that they have no interest in recovering the bomb because they are worried that since it has been in the water undisturbed for so long, corroding, that any attempt to remove it, even if they found it, could cause it to go off, Mm. which wouldn't necessarily be good for the fish. So did it hit a fish on the way down and make green sushi? Maybe. I I would say it's more (laughs) likely for them to hit a fish than uh, the other bomb. Than a cow cow. in the swamp. Yeah. And so, again, if this... If they decide not to have dropped the bomb and say the plane crashed at the airport or something and the bomb went off, um, it would have destroyed the city of Savannah, Georgia, and probably killed over 70,000 people. Wow. From direct effects. Yeah, from being vaporized, basically. And then Savannah would be a radioactive wasteland for a, for a while. For a while. You know. So... If you want to go treasure hunting, Jamie, there's your spot. Well, you know, Jenny wants to go to school at SCAD. So Jenny, SCAD. Savannah College of Art and Design. Oh. So if Jenny goes to SCAD, maybe I can go do some treasure hunting off the coast. Nice, nice. Get your scuba gear. Scuba gear. You know, my parents have scuba gear in our house. Sounds like a road trip. I guess so. They used to go scuba diving a lot. <laughs> I got all the equipment needed. We even have a boat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, that would be a trip. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. That, that'll be a spring break next year. We'll go. There we go. Okay. So. Sounds, sounds fun. Now, this next incident uh, did not happen... In the U.S. Uh, It's known as the Thule Air Base Incident of 1968. For those who don't know, Thule Air Base is in Greenland. Hmm. Which is owned by Denmark, but still. Why do we have an air base there? Well, Denmark, of course, famously, or infamously, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, got their ass kicked by the Nazis back in World War II. They lost uh, control of their country in like six hours. Oh. Something like that. And so after the country had been invaded, uh, the Danish ambassador to the United States made a deal with the U.S., who was neutral at the time, uh, to protect the Danish overseas territories, namely Greenland. Uh, by politely asking us to invade to keep the Nazis from doing so. And so we invaded them, but with permission. Yeah, they they asked us to politely take over Greenland, and uh, Den- I mean, and Norway did the same thing with Iceland. Okay. So during so World War II, the U.S. occupied both countries. Under the table, just so I guess Germany didn't see that we were directly siding with them. But what does that really 
Jane? Yeah. You know. It wasn't, you know, the biggest thing. But in the summer of 1940, the U.S. built a series of radio bases with big air quotes around those uh, across the island. And so that was our presence there to kind of justify. But um, the war ended. We beat the Nazis, you know, all good things. Um, and Denmark joined NATO. And... Uh, because the U.S. is very much the head of NATO, uh, we got to keep these, air quote, radio stations, namely Thule Air Base. And we really got to begin militarizing them as overseas military bases. So at this point, Thule Air Base becomes, like, key in the Strategic Air Command's plan for the bombers flying in the air 24-7 um, as Operation uh, Chrome Dome. It was supposed to be kind of hush-hush. The American public wasn't... Uh, it was decided that they didn't need to know all the specifics about what was going on at this base, especially given uh, the previous mishaps that had been occurring rather frequently. And also knowing having like a quote-unquote secret base is also a good plan, just so nobody knows, yeah. hopefully, <laughs> secret what base. you've got going on there. Secret base. So yeah, and kind of sidetrack, us having all these bases in Greenland at the time prompted uh, President Truman to offer to just buy Greenland outright from Denmark. That's where Trump got the idea a couple years ago to try again. <laughs> Obviously didn't work. So yeah, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon either. But that's the reason behind all of it. Anyways, the incident. Everything's going fine up to this point. And on January 21st, 1968, a B-52 bomber that was carrying four B-28 thermonuclear bombs as part of Operation Chrome Dome was flying over Baffin Bay, which is body of water in the Canadian islands. It's brutally cold up in the sky, middle of the night, in the middle of winter in the Arctic Circle. Just super cold, so they have the heater on the plane going full blast, and the heater actually malfunctions to where it becomes unbearably hot inside the plane, to the point where a couple of stowed seat cushions actually ignite and spreads a fire throughout the entire plane. So the decision is made to bail out because the plane's on fire. And all but one of the crew members are able to do so successfully. The co-pilot, Leonard Svitenko, sustained fatal head injuries while he was attempting to bail. Unfortunately. At around... 3.39 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the bomber crashed into the ice about seven and a half miles west of Thule Air Force Base. The conventional explosives for all of the bombs detonated and spread nuclear materials all across the ice sheet. Not only that, the jet fuel on the plane ignited and caused the ice to melt and caused the wreckage to fall down to the ocean floor. Perfect. Yeah. Not a good scenario, and now the crew is 
that survived was stranded out on the ice sheet in negative 23 degree weather. And the captain of the plane was lost on the ice for around 21 hours in the negative 20 degree weather and suffered severe hypothermia. But he did manage to survive, along with the rest of the crew, except for the co-pilot. I wonder how. They got some good jackets. Good jackets, determination. Obviously, as we had hoped, the American and Danish government immediately began the cleanup effort. And they called it Project Crested Ice. During this cleanup program, the... Temperature averaged around negative 40 degrees, and they had wind gusts on the ice up to 90 miles an hour, and most of it was done during the 24 hours of darkness of the Arctic night. Not a good job to work for. A miracle (laughs) that they found anything. But that's the thing. They did manage to clean up around 97% of the debris, and they managed to send them to... uh, Pantex plant, which is a nuclear disassembly plant in North Texas. That's where all the pieces got set to. The SAC, Strategic Air Command, reported that all four bombs had been destroyed. And so there was no worry about any sort of possible detonation after they left. The project ended in September of 1968 and ended up costing uh, over $9 million, which is around $70 million in today's money. And it exposed 700 people during the cleaning process to radioactive waste. And this incident marked an immediate end to Operation Chrome Dome. The <laughs> uh, president canceled the 24-hour constant flights of bombers. Part of the reason that helped with this decision was that we now had the technology to jet send intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yay for us, I guess. You know, you take what you can get, I guess. Gives them a solid reason to switch over. It's logical. But not only did this cause a sort of change of policy here in the U.S., there was outrage in Denmark because Denmark had been a nuclear-free zone since 1957. Supposedly. Well, that's the thing. In 1965, one of their officials sort of gave us permission whenever they weren't supposed to, thus violating the government policy Mm. of not having any nuclear weapons around. So, not a good thing. Um, Sounds like someone probably lost their job. It, uh, I think they called it the Thulegate scandal whenever they found out that an official had given permission for us to have stuff here. Because initially, it caused a big stink because it's like, you have nukes there without our permission. But then later, it's like, wait, someone gave you permission whenever they shouldn't have. Whole big scandal. But the plot thickens because in... 1987, and then again in 2000, and then again in 2008 by the BBC, uh, investigations found and claimed that 
one of the four bombs, nuclear material, was never recovered. They claimed that the U.S. gave up back in 1968, and they figured that because they had such a hard time finding the missing pieces, that there was no way anyone else could. So, so it was a non-issue. They stopped. The 3% doesn't matter. It was not it, found. It could have been a lot more than 3% is what they were saying. But there was some reporting that said an entire bomb went missing, not just the nuclear material. But the Danish government has said it was just the fizzle materials, the nuclear material, and the secondary, but not an actual bomb. Hmm. To this day, there is some radioactive risk if you visit the crash site itself. But the stuff that's in the water has theoretically been diluted enough to where it would not pose a risk. I still wonder how they even guessed that they got 97% of it out there. I guess just by weight or something. But if four, four bombs explode, then to say you got 97% of it, there's no way. Yeah, I'm, I'm to inclined be. to think that they definitely left a lot more up there than they're telling us. But, you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. That it's not, not really. It's not a dangerous. Yeah, it's not any. dangerous. You know, maybe again with global warming, that might become a problem eventually. But, yeah, we're not going to worry about that. <laughs> Nuclear fallout before global warming. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be a less radioactive spot than most. And so that ended... The plane program of the bombers, understandably, accidents involving bombers decreased substantially. We weren't accidentally dropping nukes on us very much anymore after this last incident. Well, that's a relief. Yes, <laughs> but that doesn't mean the threat is completely gone, as evidenced by this last incident that we'll talk about occurred in 1980 and it's known as the Damascus incident because it occurred in Damascus, Arkansas. So as the Cold War progressed after the Thule incident, we shifted away from the bomber plane strategy to uh, the missile ICBM strategy. Logistically, this was a better solution to prepare for mutually assured destruction because missiles can be launched from anywhere in the continent of the United States, basically at a moment's notice. And you don't have to have planes up in the air. It doesn't take time for the planes to fly anywhere. You can just press a button, and the missiles are launched. At that point, like in World War II, you know, the plane that dropped the nukes could fly off just fine, but at that point, we made nukes big enough that that plane wasn't coming back. No. Definitely not. By the end of the 1960s, our rocket of choice was the Titan II ICBM, which is 103 feet tall and weighs over 340,000 pounds. Coincidentally, these are the exact same rockets that were used in the Gemini space missions for NASA. Basically what you do is instead of carrying a 9-megaton nuclear warhead, you just put a space capsule on the top. And you solve that problem. Hmm. Multi-purpose. Multi-purpose, yes. 
And so the reason why these rockets in particular were used is because they used what were known as hypergolic fuels. So these are solid powder fuels, chemicals that ignite on contact with one another. No oxygen source is needed. It's not mm. like liquid fuel that also needs oxygen. It's just spontaneous combustion whenever the two chemicals collide. That's great because you don't have to refuel them. They can kind of just sit in their missile silos for super long periods of time without any sort of preparation. Because with liquid oxygen, it has to be super cold and that takes time to pump it in. Which, if you're going to World War III, nuclear apocalypse, you don't have that much time. So that's why these rockets were used. Unfortunately, the chemicals used are highly toxic and carcinogenic. Because chemicals. Because how could they be safe when they're throwing something into space? Exactly. Or at your enemy. And so it's part of this new strategy, uh... Nuclear silos were placed underground all across the country. And we had several thousand nuclear weapons stored in hundreds of silos. A little scary. Everywhere, basically. The number of these facilities has been decreasing steadily as more of our arsenal is either just destroyed or moved on to submarines. Submarines? Because that's even better, because not only can you launch them at a moment's notice, submarine can get a lot closer than Montana to the Soviet Union. <laughs> that's true, I guess. <laughs> but a lot of the country actually didn't really have to worry that much about silos. They kind of clustered up in specific areas of the country, namely, I think, Missouri, Arkansas, Kansas, Montana. Less, less populated. Empty space. You can fit a lot more silos in there. Hmm. And I think you can go and find some maps of like where certain silos still are that have been decommissioned. And they're actually kind of a popular spot for urban explorers. Hmm. If you want to go see a giant pit in the ground. Um, Road trip. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let me, <laughs> let me explain what's going on here. So one of these silos... Um, Damascus, Arkansas, which is outside of Little Rock, the capital. So on September 18th, 1980, at around 6.30 p.m., uh, a couple of airmen were doing some regular maintenance check on the oxidizer. One of the chemicals pressure in the tank was kind of a little bit below what it should have been. So they were going inside to check on it and took tools in to work on it. They ended up taking a wrong tool by accident. They're working on it, and one of the workers manages to drop the eight-pound socket from the platform they are standing on, and it falls about 80 feet, where it bounces off of one of the support struts, pierces the fuel tank, causing it to leak. Oh, no. <laughs> so now you have a cloud of toxic hypergolic fuel in the bottom of your silo. Facility has been evacuated. Nothing good is happening right now. But you see, the tanks are pressurized because 
the fuel is supposed to be inside of them. So as this fuel is draining out of the fuel tank, the structure of the missile is weakened, which threatens the 9-ton nuclear warhead on top of it to collapse, which would cause the other chemical tank to rupture, thus making the whole thing go boom, which we do not want. And so there's a ticking time clock on this. And so they got to go in and try and stop the leak. They got they got to if they can't stop the leak, they got to vent the facility and get air into the silos so that way the chemicals can't mix, there can't be an explosion. So early the next morning, senior airman David Livingston and Sergeant Jeff Kennedy re-enter the chamber with protective gear on because it's carcinogenic um, and they detect an explosive atmosphere in the silo. They were ordered to evacuate, so they did, but then they were ordered to re-enter and turn on the exhaust fan in order to pump the gas out of the silo to prevent an explosion. Now, the, these chemicals mixing blow it up, but does the spark also? That's the thing. While these two were inside the silo, at around 3 a.m., the fuel does end up exploding, and their best guess was that while turning on the exhaust fan, there was some sparking or some electrical arching that ignited the fuel. And so the explosion caused the door on the top of the silo to catapult into the sky along with the second stage of the nuclear missile. Um, with the warhead still attached. Now keep in mind, the door of the silo on top weighs 740 tons. It's a big explosion. And so the second... And it gets launched up into the sky. The second stage of the rocket, also launched into the sky, clears the station and explodes in the air. The warhead on top of the second stage gets shot across the facility and lands 100 feet from the front gate of the facility. It does not detonate. Livingston died at the hospital. And he didn't... He didn't die at the silo. He did not die immediately from the explosion, which is amazing, considered where they were. But he did die from his injuries at the hospital. Kennedy suffered breathing problems for the rest of his life. Oh, but he survived. He did survive. Breathing problems when a 740-ton door was thrown. And he's fine. Relatively. 21 other people around the facility in the facility, also suffered from injuries related to the blast. But other than Livingston, nobody died. Wow. The complex was completely destroyed and was never repaired. They simply covered the hole with a mound of dirt. And it remains that way to this day. So what happened to the warhead? That was tossed. It was 
recovered, taken to Pantex, and disassembled. That seems to be another common thread is since Pantex is really the only facility that can properly dismantle these weapons that if an accident goes wrong, they take the material to Pantex where it can be properly disassembled and they can study what happened and that kind of stuff. Hmm. But if this nuke happened to have detonated, um, there could have been around 3,000 injuries, well, 3,000 fatalities, and maybe around 9,000 injuries. But still, only one death out of that whole thing. They managed to evacuate the facility in time, and so... Yeah. And the thing is, uh, a lot of those silos are still in operation today with similar weapons. But a lot of that technology was, uh, you know, built back in the 60s and the 80s. So, you know, today you wouldn't be surprised to walk into a missile silo and still find people using floppy disks. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Update software. Oh, oh, wait. Oh, wait, we can't, because we physically can't insert anything else. That's kind of a problem, but these have been a few of the more famous times that the U.S. military has uh, goofed, I guess you could say, uh, with its news. Like I said, the official list is about 32, and that's the only ones that the Pentagon will admit to. I've heard that some people think that if you count, like, more minor incidents, it could be as high as a thousand. But the Pentagon assures us that no one was ever truly in danger because the safety mechanisms worked like they were supposed to. As they always do, and nothing is wrong, we have it handled. Yeah, nothing has ever gone wrong except for all the stuff that obviously did go wrong. We were always safe. But it could have been worse. Could have. Personally, I think (laughs) nuclear weapons are a mistake. But at this point, you know, it's Pandora's box. We're never going to be able to get rid of them. So we just have to constantly live with the risk of this sort of stuff happening. Just carry a big stick and hopefully you don't hit yourself with it. Yeah, it's a big stick that uh, is slowly rotting from antiquated technology that we have really no incentive. Well, we do have an incentive, but no ambition to fix in our government. It costs more than it's worth to just build more silos. Probably. So, if any of our listeners want to do any more research into these topics, um, a good book I can recommend is Command and Control by Eric Schlosser. And uh, if you want to find out any more information, there will be information down in the show notes. Um, as always, want to shout out to Lexi for the cover art. And music is by Mountain Ear. You can find that on upbeat.io. That's upbeat with two Ps. Um, as always, also, we would like to acknowledge that we are recording this episode on occupied land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkwo people, as well as other indigenous people. If you have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, 
Uh, you can reach us at historyspelunkers at gmail.com. That's history, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S. Thank y'all for listening, and see y'all next time down the rabbit hole. Bye, guys. See ya. See you later.